Good morning, come on Neil. We are now going to return to the book of Acts. We're going through the book of Acts as a church. And uh, we're in the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. I have a very large uh, passage of scripture today, Acts 2, 22 through 36. And I kind of time, I'm not going to ask you to stand today, but I do want you to open your Bibles to Acts 2 if you have your Bibles with you. And then we're going to go through these verses and I'll throw them up on the screen as we go through, through each one. But before we do, can we take a moment just to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to be with us during this time? Lord, we know you're already with us. We know that your Holy Spirit has led us in a very moving and powerful time of worship. We, we just see your hand at work all over our church and all of these ministries and the lives of those who serve and, and those who give. But now, Lord, we, we ask that you would open our minds to the scripture, that you would help us to place ourselves there in the first century <clears throat> Jerusalem and to hear this message from Peter through the power of your Holy Spirit bringing conviction, a day when 3,000 came to the faith that we would know who our Lord is, that we would know where our hope is, that it would bring us such conviction that we would devote every aspect of our lives to this truth. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you recall, two weeks ago, we began Peter's sermon, and the very first thing that he does is he calls people to attention, and he points them to the prophecy of Joel. And it's a powerful, powerful a prophetic piece that was written hundreds of years before Christ. He helps them to see that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this mighty rushing wind, the flames of tongue, the, the, the ability that now a very poor people who are proclaiming the mighty deeds of God in languages they could not possibly know, every language under the sun, he is helping them to see this is that. This is where we are in history. This is where we are in the great narrative of, of scripture and history is we are in this moment when God has poured out his spirit and your young people will prophesy, the old men will dream dreams. You know, from now on, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And, and within the context of Joel's prophecy, he says, these are the last days. The last days begin now, from now until the day of the Lord when Christ returns. Now is the time, the movement of the Holy Spirit, and all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the first point of his sermon. You know, after I preached this message a few weeks ago, one of the church members um, wrote me and asked me to flesh out what the significance is for Colonial in regards to being in the last days. You know, that started at Pentecost. It's still going on. What does that mean for us? I'm not going to get into, you know, like church-specific things right now because I, th I want you to be able to see what it meant to the first century uh, church and it's not going to be very different. There are two main things, though, that I want to say in response to that email. Number one is this. This moment of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes in such power and fulfillment of Scripture and introduces the last days, this is a time, and it remains a time, when we as individuals, as families, and as a church would do well to align ourselves with this movement of God's Holy Spirit. It's different than having a set of laws and trying to live according to those laws and live a moral life and so on. This movement of, of, of Pentecost, of the coming of the Holy Spirit, illustrates and says in no uncertain terms, God is here and God is moving with power upon all flesh. And we would do well to align ourselves with that movement of God. Now, let me give you an illustration. I've given you tons of illustrations over the years, but this is one that really... Uh, speaks to me. Imagine, if you will, that your life and our life together is like a sailboat. 
You know, a sailboat by definition, how many of you have ever been on a sailboat? I wouldn't think many of you land lovers. A lot of you have been on a sailboat. That's good. All right. Well, if you've ever been on a sailboat, you know that by definition, you know, unlike the big yacht sailboats, I mean, your standard sailboat has no engine. There's no motor there, right? So the only way you're going to move is if you know which direction the wind is going, you find where the wind is, and then you raise your sail and you align it with the prevailing with, with, with the power of that wind that you cannot see, but that is there. In many respects, most of us as kind of modern day Americans, you know, we, we don't live our lives that way. <clears throat> we work very hard to invest in our engine, in the power of our ability to row, and we want to go where we want to go. And really what we want is for God just to <clears throat> fuel our engine, you know, to bless our objectives and our agendas on, on the things that we want to do. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, there's a great deal of humility that says, I'm chucking that engine to the bottom of the ocean, and I'm going to align my sails with his power where he's going, that I'm going to allow my ship to be driven to the point where he wants me to go. And that's kind of scary for a lot of us, but that's very much what happens in the early church. That's very much what happens to a church and families and individuals who will trust the Holy Spirit power of God to move us. And we have to seek him. We have to discern where is he blowing? Where is he going? What is the power of God doing? We seek that through prayer and scripture. We surrender our agendas. We rely upon his power. And we should expect, according to this text, to hear God speak through the least likely people, which is, that's, that's the story of my life. You know, the, the prophecy states that when the Holy Spirit comes, children will proclaim the mighty deeds of God. They will prophesy. Those at the very bottom of the socioeconomic ladder will be used by God to proclaim the works of God. And Jesus pointed to this. He said, when the kingdom comes, it's going to turn everything upside down. The last will be first. The first shall be last. What it's going to look like at Colonial, it's going to be this upside down inverted reality where those who are considered the least are exalted and those who are exalted in this world are demoted. You can pretty much count on that and we see exactly that happen in the, in the ancient church, in the first church. Most importantly, in these last days, the believers shall make it their primary business to proclaim the good news, which is this, that in this time in history, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now you think, well, whatever. Listen, every single person you've ever met is crying out, whether they know it or not, who will save us. Every person you know is seeking salvation. Let me give you an example. When the terrorist attacks happened on November 13th in Paris, you know, and, and, it, and, it, and it just starts coming through the line, right? Through the internet, through the television, through the radio. And you begin to hear these atrocious, terrible things that happen. And the weightiness of that begins to land on each and every person who came, you know, within contact of that news. This could be us. This could happen in our homes. This could happen in our theaters. This could, and, and what is the very next question that comes? Who is going to save us? Who's strong enough to stand up against the bullies? America, Russia, France? Who will protect our sons and daughters? Who will ensure that justice is dished out to those men who so ruthlessly snuffed out the lives of unarmed men, women, and children? 
listen to the talk, read the papers, people everywhere are asking the question, who will save us? Listen to the drug addict, the alcoholic, the prostitute. Listen to the grieving widow, the prodigal son, the depressed teenager. Listen to the stressed out business leader, the exhausted stay-at-home mom, those suffering from ongoing health issues and disabilities. Listen to the lyrics of most songs, the pathos of poetry, and the cynical exasperation of souls everywhere, all around the world. They are all asking in their own way, who will save us? Is there any hope that this is ever going to get better? The answer to the human dilemma is provided powerfully on this day of Pentecost, this historic, momentous day. Peter says the prophecies have come to pass. The Holy Spirit of God is being poured out upon all flesh, and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the answer to our heart's most desperate question. God is here. He is living. He's not dead. God is moving, and the door has swung open. For a season, and all who walk through the open door will be saved. Salvation will not be determined by our effort or our goodness or our intelligence or our bank account. Salvation will not be determined by our martyrdom or jihad. Salvation will not rest upon, you know, living up to our own personal standards or being a nice person who tried to get along with everyone else. Salvation will not be this for some people and that for others. Salvation will rest upon one thing and one thing only, the name. The name. Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, which leads to an obvious and incredibly important question. Well, what is the name of the Lord? What is the prophecy referring to? How can we know who it is that we're to call upon in order to be saved? Yahweh, Allah, Buddha, Zeus, Artemis, or the great warrior in the sky? Does it even matter? What is the name of the Lord upon whom we are to lay our hopes for salvation? Peter will now answer that question In verse 22, Peter pronounces, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. And when he concludes the sermon, in verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. That's the answer to the great question. What is the name of the Lord? It is simply this. The name is Jesus of Nazareth. But why? I mean, amongst all the world religions, upon all the claims of truth that have ever been made, why Jesus? Why this poor carpenter from Nazareth? Why should anybody think to call upon his name to be saved? And how in the world does one man save the world? Peter now preaches Jesus. The first and great, perhaps greatest, public message ever is about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And he does it in way less than 35 minutes, which is what it takes me to do. He's very concise. Let me show you. Verse 22, Peter points to the obvious power of God that was in and worked through Jesus of Nazareth in his public ministry. Here's what he says. He says, he was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Peter is appealing to common knowledge. People who lived in Jerusalem, they knew. They, they saw his work in the temple. You know, people, large crowds of people witnessed his healing by the pool of Siloam. They were just outside of town when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They must concede that this man, Jesus, was no ordinary man from Nazareth. He was perfect. He was God-made flesh. 
They were knowingly or unknowingly witnesses to the incarnation. Next, Peter preaches Jesus crucified. In verse 23, he goes on, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You have to understand something. Peter is helping the first century audience put the pieces of the puzzle together. According to the messianic prophecies that so many of the Jews were familiar with in Isaiah 52 and 53, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, would be one who is marred beyond human semblance, despised and rejected by men, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He was the one upon whom God would lay the iniquities of us all. All of these prophecies, hundreds of years before Christ, but these prophecies are what Peter is now appealing to in that common knowledge of the Jewish mind. These prophecies are why Peter can proclaim with full confidence, it was a plan. It was always the Father's plan to save us through his Son, through the suffering Savior. That through the death of one perfect lamb, all could be saved. And then Peter says, and you, men of Jerusalem, just killed the Lamb of God. You know, I, I think he could preach that same message to us. We said, well, we didn't kill Jesus. Our sins nailed him to the cross. If, if you deny your sin, if, if you don't see yourself as having any hand in requiring the perfect lamb to be crucified in our place. You'll never really get the gospel. But this day, that is a crushing piece of information for this crowd in, Israel, uh, in Jerusalem. Through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, this is a crushing message for them. The long-awaited Messiah, we just killed him. We nailed him to a Roman cross. Then Peter preaches the resurrection of Christ. In verse 24, he states, God raised him up, Loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You know, remember the entire Christian hope, everything about our faith rests upon the empty tomb. If Jesus has not been raised, says the Apostle Paul, our faith is in vain. Peter once again appeals to Scripture to justify his point. He quotes Psalm 16, appealing to King David, who is attributed as author of that psalm, who writes, I saw the Lord, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, Peter says, David was a great king. Verses 29 through 32, he was a great king. He was a patriarch, but he died and he was buried, and we know where his tomb is, and his body saw corruption. So clearly David isn't writing about himself. He's not calling himself the Holy One. Who is David talking about? Clearly it is the Christ. The Christ, the Messiah of God, would be resurrected. He would not be abandoned to Hades, the place of the dead, nor would his flesh see corruption. Peter concludes this argument for the resurrection not only with scripture, but then with the apostolic witness. And this is so important. This Jesus God raised up, he said, and of that, we are all witnesses. He's not saying, I know this secret knowledge, Jesus appeared to me and nobody else. He's not saying, you know, it was just one or two people. He's saying, look, there's, a, there's over a hundred of us 
who saw him alive after he was publicly crucified and buried. And this is what's going to cost them their lives. They are willing to die to simply say, he's not dead, he's alive. We saw him, we touched him. We ate with him. Finally, Peter preaches the ascension of Christ. Verse 23, he says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's talking about all the stir of the disciples proclaiming the mighty works of God in all these different languages. For David, listen, for David did not ascend into the heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, if you recall the Luke series, we talked about this passage. It's quoted in Luke and once again in Acts from Psalm 110. This had to be a very perplexing psalm for the ancient Jews. My Lord said to the Lord, sit at my right hand. What does that mean, right? My Lord is capital L-O-R-D. And that's Yahweh, the, the name that could not be spoken, but the great name of God, right? The Father. Yahweh said to the Lord, sit at my right hand. Is David talking about himself? No, no, no. King David as a human being would never associate himself with the honor of sitting at the right hand of God. To sit at the right hand of a king is to share in his rule and authority. So who is he talking about? Hundreds of years before Christ, this scripture existed. My Lord said to the Lord. Peter says, the Lord is Jesus of Nazareth. And and he says it. Verse 36, after he completes this argument, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is Lord. All who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. That's the message. Now, many of you have gone to church a long time. If you've been here at Colonial, you've heard the message of the gospel preached many, many times. And many of you will come to church and say, you know, I mean, I I appreciate that and I believe that. But I mean, tell me how to live my life. Tell me how to be a better husband, a better friend, a better, uh, you know, co-worker. I mean, touch on how how do I make friends and how do I feel better? I feel kind of sad in my life. Listen, there is no more important singular truth than for you to actually believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Most of our problems, most of our sadness, most of our depression, most of all the great challenges of our lives stem from the fact that we just don't really believe the gospel. But on this day, when people heard the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time, 3,000 souls came to the Lord. You want to know why? Because they had been spending their entire life saying, who is going to save us? And the answer is provided, and it rings true. It pierces to the very core of who they are. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is our salvation. He is our hope. And you can spend a lifetime trying to understand what that means and living into that truth. But that is the gospel. You know, 3,000. I would be so happy to see one soul today who would take a knee at the public proclamation of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the lordship of Christ. It would thrill me to know 
that one soul who came into this building today asking this very question, who then shall save us? Is there any hope? Through the power of the Holy Spirit convicting you would know this is the answer to that question. There is salvation, there is freedom, there is hope in the darkest hour, there is healing, there is power, there is truth and forgiveness and reconciliation with God the Father in one name, in his name. That's true. How does it work? I mean, the, the, the question comes next, and we'll, we'll see this as we get back into the, into, into the end of this chapter. What, what then shall we do? The crowd, when they're convicted, people, when they're convicted, when they see their sin, when they recognize that God has stepped in in his great love for us and given us his only son that we killed, when that conviction comes, the, the inevitable question is, what then shall we do? And Peter will respond in verse 38, repent. <laughs> Say you're sorry. Turn away from, from the path you've been walking. Just turn around. Call upon the name of the Lord. Be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen, this is my invitation to every single person here today. There's no one else coming. Your mighty army, your bank account, your intelligence, your good looks, all the plans, your 401k, it's not going to save you. It's not going to be the Russians or the French or even the great country of the USA. The one who has come to save has come. All of our lives are dated to him. He's the very center of history, and he will save you and us, this church, this city, and the whole world through the blood of the perfect lamb. And I would just pray that if you call upon his name, that you do so with humility and repentance. In faith, what little faith we can muster, that this is the one who died for us. This is the way of salvation. It is available to all who will repent and call upon his name. Will you pray with me? Lord, this is the basic gospel, but it is what changed the world. It is what started a movement. It is what accounts for Millions of shoeboxes going to the poorest of children all over the world. It is, it is our salvation. It is your name. And who are we? Who are we to call upon this name, Lord? So undeserving, so distracted. We know what we've done. We know what we've said. And yet it is an open invitation to all people in every tribe and tongue and language to simply call upon the great name of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith that we might be saved even now that we will be saved as we breathe our last that we would have hope and assurance that we would be sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit coming into us and using our lives for eternity that we would bear witness that we would be part of your kingdom work on earth even as your kingdom reigns in heaven Lord now Hear the heart of each person here, and particularly, Lord, the person who came here today asking the question, who then shall save us? It is Christ the Lord. And I pray on behalf of that person, Father, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm sorry for my sin, and I call upon the name of Jesus to be my Savior. Amen.